0: Good to be with you. Um, I want to actually just have a, a chat with the, the faith family for a minute. Before we dive in, but if you have a Bible, you can go to Luke chapter 12. That's where we're going to be. We always uh, just kind of roll through books of the Bible here. So if you're visiting or you're new or just wondering what we do here, we just teach through books of the Bible. We trust that as we see uh, the fullness of God's revelation and all that he wants to say to us, that'll happen by seeing the full counsel of God. You can't really get the full counsel of God unless you walk through all of what God says. And so um, that means we might be in a book for a few years or a few months, or but we just keep trekking and pushing and plotting uh, as God continues to grace graciously reveal himself through uh, that which is his written word. Um, And so uh, this is just a worship service. So we worship Jesus that way. We love the Bible, so we love to see what Jesus says about himself and worship him in light of what he says that's true about his nature and his character and his infinite perfections. And then um, we also worship Jesus by singing songs. That's why we love to sing. Uh, It's not just because we like to hear ourselves sing. Actually, most of us have pretty terrible voices, so (laughs) that'd be the the worst thing to do. We love to sing because we praise Him with our lips, and it stole the very things that are His infinite perfections. And then uh, we give generously in the boxes in the back because we love that God has given us most generously in Himself. And we take the Lord's Supper each week because it's another act of worship where we get to observe and see and visibly remember the good purchasing work of Jesus. And so um, that's that's really why we're here. And um, I, I don't know how you come in the room this morning particularly. Now, um, let, let me just say this before we get into Luke 12. This is actually going to lead us into Luke 12, but um, we, live, we live in a world where chaos, suffering, evil, wickedness will, will always be until future glory, right? So, so we, we, we first affirm that. Um, but, but, but underneath all that, we believe that there is something that, that pulls back the darkness and, and enters into that space and redeems that which, which is broken, right? We, we believe that's what's called the gospel, right? The good news of Jesus Christ, that what he did on the cross is what actually can invade darkness and overcome it by his light. I was thinking a lot this week, um, and if you've been under a rock, then you didn't, weren't really paying attention this week, but um, lots has happened this week. Um, And and to be honest, um, I haven't slept a lot. Um, I don't know what you've been like. I don't even know how you come in this room. Maybe you come in this room completely naive. Maybe you come in this room completely indifferent. Maybe you come in this room confused. Maybe you come in this room angry. Maybe you come in this room filled with compassion. Maybe you come in this room just like wanting to do something, not knowing what to do. Uh, Maybe you come in this room grieving. Um, And when I talk about events of this past week and really this season, what, what I'm really alluding to is, is the evil that we saw in Orlando and in Turkey and in Baghdad, and um, I'm talking about the justice and injustice that we've seen in Dallas and in Minnesota and Louisiana, um, talking about the, the racial tensions. And, and so... Um, I just wanted to say two things before we, we roll into actually God is providence always gives us something that's helpful uh, in seasons like this. This is uh, the first thing I wanted to say is as Christians, right? As confessional Christians, we care deeply about life, all of life, right? Life matters to us because we are all made in the image of God, right? And so, so regardless of ethnicity, regardless of color, we care about life. And because we care about life, we care about truth, which means we care about mortality, and we care about immortality, right? The mortality in the sense of all of us will die, right? That's the one statistic that's hard-charging 100%. No one in this room is going to avoid it unless Jesus returns previously. So we got the mortality facing us, then you have the immortality that everybody lives forever, either in eternal glory with Jesus or eternal conscious torment apart from him. So, so we care when life is taken. Because we don't have the right to do that. God has the right to do that. And so as Christians, if that doesn't bother you, you need to do some research in your heart. If it doesn't cause you angst, if it doesn't cause you discomfort that, that these things are happening, it should cause you some unrest. The second thing I want to say in light of that is something I actually thought of this week that Martin Luther King said. Right? He said, darkness cannot overcome darkness, but light has to invade it. Right? And can I remind us, brothers and sisters, this morning that we have the light of the world in our life and on our lips. Because historically, if you look at historically what happens is the gospel is preached. Just go throughout redemptive history. The gospel is given, and it transforms lives, and then it transforms cultures. So what that doesn't mean is you, you never can have true racial reconciliation or truest of evil removed through unredeemed, manufactured hearts. That's not going to happen. Like, I don't care how long we try to do it, it's got to be something otherworldly outside of us that transforms us, that causes us to live and see in ways that we can't see and hear in ways that we couldn't hear before. So we, we desperately need Jesus laid before us all the time. We desperately need Jesus and his gospel laid before us all the time, and so can it remind us that we've been given his most precious word that reveals to us, shows us, lays before us this very hope in Jesus. Now, listen, when we say that, this isn't like some chant or like lip service. Like, here's my question to you, do you, do you believe that in the resurrection of Jesus there's literally power? To like transform evil, to push back darkness, to bring about a world where we can actually see this one race—the way God made it—where we see the gospel breaks down all bridges. Where it's not, you know, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. It is, it is one race of people loving Jesus, adopted into one singular family. You can't see that, know that, enjoy that without Him doing something to you. Like, like, so when we say, like, hey, our our hope is Jesus. I, we don't mean that as some just fleeting chant or saying, or we, we need to believe this. You need to, in the deepest parts of your soul, believe this. And the reason is because this Jesus is the only one who really knows and identifies with all of the brokenness and offers the remedy, right? He, he knows what it's like to live in racial tensions, He knows what it's like to see injustice and justice and even to be killed by the hands of it. He knows how to give and operate in mercy. He's been wrongfully treated. He's seen surprising deaths. But guys, the horror that is the cross is met with what? The majesty of an empty tomb. That's why we're here. And because you have this in your life and on your lips, is that demonstrative in the way that you love, grieve, and mourn with the black community? Is it demonstrated in the way that you think and feel about evil and believing that this gospel pushes back the darkness and brings in unhindered light? Do you believe that with the people you work around and your neighbors that you are actually an ambassador of reconciliation, that God has put you in the time and season and place he has not randomly, but so that you can be a city on a hill, right? Salt and light among this depraved, wicked, fractured place. Do you believe that? Do you believe that or do you not believe that? Because I'll tell you, as we continue to see things, we have to continue to believing that and acting rightly in that belief. And that's why I love that the raising of Jesus is God's megaphone to arouse a world and say, I care. Right? I'm involved in this. Post-Genesis 3, I knew it was coming and I already had Jesus as the plan and he came, lived, died, rose, and he is now at all about redemption, redeeming, and bringing about about hope. So God says to us, weary saints and to a suffering world, he says two things. He says Christ crucified and Christ risen. That's what he says. And anything else is just manufacturing. So I just want us to give us a minute to pray as a, as a body here. Um, the first thing I want to do is I just want us to be quiet and actually not say anything because I think so often we can forget that, that God is not surprised. He isn't being woken up. He is full authority, full control, governs all things, and deeply cares about it. So just to sit for a moment and remember, there is a God who is totally sovereign, who governs all things, and is not unaware of evil. He's not unaware of injustice and that we trust him, that he will vindicate all things in the perfect ways, in the perfect rightness. So we grieve, we pray, and we hope. And oh, do we hope. (laughs) Like I had to fight for a hope this week. Um, I had feelings of helplessness this week. You know, if you're a control freak like me, it drives you nuts, right? But, but we hope because as you hear names, as you watch TV, as you hear the news, as you read the paper, you're gonna hear lots of names and the one name that we need to give as we rightly remember and respect all people, there's a name that we need to give and set before people and it's Jesus. We want people to hear that name and know Christ crucified and Christ risen. Let's take a moment. Just before we dive into Luke, where actually Jesus is going to reveal and remind us about our mortality, ironically, right? It's not ironic. It's in God's providence. But let's just remember for a minute that God is good, that God cares, that God is involved, that he has given us the light of the world, not only in his son, but indwells us as Christians and gives, given it on our lips. Let's ask him to do something. Let's sit for a moment and just either confess your indifference to him, confess your just unawareness, your apathy, your lack of love, I don't know what it might be, but just confess it to him, let him gladly forgive that sin, and then just sit for a moment in remembering and considering that he's good and that he's in control and that he's sovereign and that he will eventually see all things through. Father, would you help us this morning? Would you lay before us Jesus again? God, would you give us ears to hear things we cannot hear on our own, eyes to see things we cannot see on our own, a mind to understand things that we cannot understand on our own? Lord, would you be good and gracious, God? Would you use us in ways that are meaningful. God, would we trust in the saving, miraculous, transforming power that is found in Jesus? God, would you help us to grow in love? Would you help us to mourn with those who don't look like us, remembering that there is no such thing as look and race there's one race there is one humanity that you are creating and forming because of Jesus which breaks down the wall of hostility you say God would you remind us as we see evil evil that God you are hope amidst evil and suffering and despair God, encourage us this morning with Christ crucified and Christ risen. Thank you for caring about the brokenness. Thank you for caring about our sin-stained hearts. God, thank you for what you'll do among us. God, we pray that you would do things through your church that would transform culture. That as you transform lives and transform and establish your church, that it would transform where it is. In the power of Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 12 is where we're going to uh, come, in the, come in this morning. We've been in the Gospel of Luke. If you, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back you can grab. Just wanted to uh, let you guys know that as well. And here, here's what I want to say is basically Jesus has been bringing this great message of the kingdom of God. So that's what Jesus has been saying. Jesus has been traveling around, teaching, preaching, healing, and it's all about this message of what is called the kingdom, how there is a kingdom, and there is a king of that kingdom, and you can't enter into that kingdom through any deeds of your own, rights of your own, any morality. It's got to be done through the purchasing Work of Jesus. And so what's awesome is is that we've been seeing throughout Luke, we've been seeing in Jesus' life that his main concern always is your spiritual state. right? He, he always is concerned with your mortality. He's always concerned about you knowing that this isn't all that you see, right? The, the material world is not all that there is. There is a world coming, and that's where we're actually going to spend the, the majority of our time, right, which is eternal, right We can't even really understand that in our minds if we try and think about it that there was really no beginning for God because we've had a beginning and we can't really understand that there's not going to be no end yet I think we will in our infinite minds that he will give us when we're in glory but for now in our finite state that's hard for us to even grasp so Jesus is trying to warn us hey don't get caught and just here right don't be walking around with your face in the ground keep your eyes up and heavenward so you can be prepared and trained and ultimately saved from that which is coming if you do not know Jesus and so um, here we have him teaching and demonstrating again this beautiful truth and he's going to tell a parable and a parable is basically just an illustration, or a, a story to illustrate a theological idea or a theological thought. So, um, but let's look at the beginning first. In verse 13 of chapter 12, uh, a few things have to be said for us to really understand why he's gonna say what he's gonna say. So here's what happens. Verse 13, someone from the crowd, Jesus is teaching, there's, there's thousands. Someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> but he said to him, Jesus said to this man, man, I love that, doesn't care about giving him his name, just man, why are you interrupting me? Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Okay, so let, let's get in context for a minute. It's always important. If you were here last week, you saw that Jesus has been rolling out this mind-bending reality that, that, that he goes on to say there are no secrets from God. That there, Don't worry about the hypocrisy of this false religion of works righteousness you see in the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, okay? God sees everything. He lays your heart bare. You can't camo yourself from the God of the universe, right? There's, there's no secrets, no corner you can get in, no wall you can hide behind, right? He says everything will be shouted from the rooftops, right? Either in this life or the life to come. And he continues to roll, in because he knows all things, you should fear God. Don't fear man. Man can just kill you. God can cast you into hell, right? We saw that was, that was weighty, that there's actually a worse death coming, and God can do much worse to you than man can do. And so, he knows all things. He notices the sparrows. He knows how many hairs are on your head, right? Out of the 150 billion people, he knows every strand of hair that's on there. So, he 150 billion, 150 hairs. You're like, wow, there's 150 billion people? No, there's like two or three, right? So 150 billion hairs on your head. He knows all of those things. And what that does is create a fear of God, which creates a fearlessness of knowing that he knows you, right? So all of a sudden, because you fear God, you don't have to be afraid anymore, Because you know you're not going to be cast into hell, because he knows who are his. And you know whose you are, you know that you are his, he says, by confessing with your lips and your life his deity, his person, and his works. And if you confess his deity, his person, and works with your lips and with your life, then he will confess you before his hundred million angels. Right? Game over. Right, we talked about that last week. Can you even imagine that, that he, he's actually going to confess you to his hundred million angels that you're his? And, and then he, he rolls into, hey, and also don't forget, I enjoy you with a resident truth teacher that will help you in the darkest nights of your soul, in, in times of greatest fear and wanting to squander and run. And as he's doing this, he is, he is rolling out the most loftiest truths we could hear. And as he's doing that, some guy cuts him off and says, hey, Jesus, yeah, I know all that spiritual stuff, heaven, hell, you know, 100 million angels, you confess, hey, hey, I want money. Hey, can you help me get my money? Is that insane? It's like, like, as I was reading this, just like this guy, I mean, the goal that he has just to say, I mean, he's got one shot to ask the incarnate God something. Right, and he, he, he's going to say out of anything, hey, you know, I think I have an inheritance that, that's half of mine with my brother. Can you tell him to give it to me? He has no concern for the spiritual at all, right? He has no concern about the invisible world. He has no concern about the eternal things. He cares about the now. He cares about what he can see in front of him. And you can see that his heart is very self-absorbed. He doesn't care that God has the authority to cast into hell. He doesn't care about what he can't see, so he picks money as being the one thing he wants to dialogue with Jesus about. Now, he, he, when he goes to Jesus and he says this, this teacher, he's basically ascribing rabbi to Jesus. So this actually isn't weird that he's kind of asking him this question. It's a little weird that he's interjecting and asking it in light of what Jesus is saying, but this was very common. They saw rabbis as those who could deal with civil issues and law issues, and so he saw Jesus had some sort of power and authority. So he's thinking to himself, okay, well, Jesus, why don't you help me with my civil issue? Why don't you do something about this issue I have with not getting my money? And that's why Jesus says, Who made me judge or arbitrator over you? He's saying, We don't have a relationship with each other. And understand, is Jesus judge? Yes, spiritually speaking, he is the judge over all things. But when it comes to family matters and economic matters, he's like, I'm not here to judge you on that. I'm here to judge you on things that are much more weighty, much more important. It's not Jesus' primary concern. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about stewardship, about how we organize our money and how we we grow and provide. The scriptures are clear about that. In this particular case, he cares most deeply about the man's spiritual state because the man doesn't see it. And here's what's profound. Jesus doesn't even care to give him a verdict on his civil issue. (laughs) I love it. I love reading Jesus. I mean, the way that he talks to people, like, oh man, that's so smart, I wish I could do that. You know, it's just, because he's, he's God, so he knows how to always answer somebody perfectly, and he just totally avoids the civil matter, doesn't hesitate, though, to give him a verdict on his spiritual condition. You're gonna, you're gonna see this here. So, Jesus basically says, hold on a second, I know you want your inheritance. Let's deal with something more important. And and, and here's what he says in verse 15. And then he said to them, right? He actually turns away from this man. Now says to all who will listen, and especially his disciples, right? So he actually turns his face away from the guy like, oh, nice question. Okay, hey, let's talk about this for a minute. And he's going to listen in and hear what's really important. And he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus goes, let me speak to the spiritual issue just for a moment. And that's what he always does. That's what Jesus always does. We've been seeing that in Luke throughout the gospel. He says, guard yourself from all covetousness. Coveting is not just the having of possessions, it's the loving of possessions. It's the worship of possessions. It's this idea, really the, the verbiage here is you thirsting for more. You actually scheme to get more. And the more you have, the more you need. Because the more you have doesn't satisfy you. It's like soda. The more you drink, the more thirsty you are, despite what commercials say. Right? So, so this is it. You just, the more you have, it just creates in you an angst where you need more, you need more, you need more. It never satisfies you. That's why we covet. We, we buy the lie that it'll, it'll actually free us when it enslaves us. But, but here's the thing. As I was reading this, um, I bet most of us, I, I, would even, I would even say most people, they don't think coveting serious. They don't think it's a serious sin. Sin, adultery, murder, killing, right? Coveting, greed, that's not serious. I mean, oh, cute little boy, he wants more, he wants more, he wants more, give him more, give him more, right? I mean, we, we think it's cute. But, but, but greed is... Serious in the scriptures. Coveting is serious in the scriptures. I mean, it actually made one of the 10 commandments, sorry. 10, right? right? It actually made one of the 10 commandments. It's the 10th. It's in there, it's on the tablets, right, that God gave Moses. He said, hey, don't covet anything that is your neighbors, not his slave, not his wife, not his oxen, not his servants not his house, let me put that in Burden County language. Don't covet anything that someone else has, not their tools, not their yard, not their landscaping, not their pool, not their driveway, not their SUV, not their TV, not their wardrobe, not their spouse, not the family they have. Do you find yourself wanting that? Do you find yourself greedy for that? Do you find your heart restless? So here's what we need to know. When you are not content, you covet. End of story. When your heart is discontent, you covet. So when you're not wrapped up in and content in what satisfies you, we'll get into ultimately Jesus, because you cure coveting by worshiping. Right? So, so if, if, you, if you covet, you can know you're not content somewhere. And here's why it's so dangerous. here's Here's why coveting is so dangerous. Because coveting is, is the lie that, that it won't betray you, that if, if you get that thing, that ultimately that thing will satisfy you, will make all things okay. So if the family works itself out, or you get the salary that you want, or you get the, the clothes that you need, or you, you, know, you see something that your neighbor has, that'll, that'll satisfy the void in your heart. So what you do is you actually put your hands through the shackles to get that thing, and it handcuffs you, and now you're enslaved, and that's the betrayal of coveting. You're not, you're not free at all. So your, your time, your dollars, and your heart is warped and stuck to that thing that you have to have. Now you're a slave to that thing, and now that thing drives your affections, that thing drives your emotions, that thing drives your wants, that thing drives your desires. that's, That's really just what it means to covet. It ends in slavery. That's why Colossians 3 says, greed is idolatry. That's simple. So if you have a greed issue, a coveting issue, you have a God issue, Now, let me just say this, guys. I'm in, the, I'm in the bucket with you. Like, I'm never exempt, right? Like, like this, this text this week, there are certain texts you come across that you're like, I just don't want to teach that. Let's, let's wipe that one out. Let's keep moving, right? But, but this is one where, man, the Lord is just reminding me, I, these are good for our souls. These are good things to hear. So it's so good for me to remember and to see Because if we don't take this seriously or see the damning effects of it, this is why we grieve. You know, most of the reasons why you grieve is because you put your joy or stock in something that couldn't bear up under the expectation of it. Most of the reasons that you grieve is you try to find contentment in something that wouldn't hold up. Because where you place your hope is really imperative to your joy, right? So if you bank your contentment on your kids, on your spouse, on your wardrobe, on what life looks like, on the shingles on your house, Or the pool in your backyard, or the car that you sit in, or the clothes that you wear. If you bank your joy, your contentment on those things, status, belongings, anything, it will betray you at some point because it was never designed and made to hold up under the expectation that we put on it. It was never meant to satisfy you. We we hear this all the time, right? Everything that's made, everything that God creates was meant to drive you to the creator of the one who made it. So we enjoy those things so that they cause us to worship the one who gave it to us. So we don't worship wealth, we worship God with our wealth, right? Like, that, that's what Jesus is going to get at here. So Jesus will not betray us, yet we don't go to Jesus. We're not satisfied in the one who makes us new and changes our hearts, the one to manufacture worship and manufacture love and manufacture what we want and satisfaction. We go to the one who is the essence of it all. And that's what Jesus is gonna show us here, which is truly amazing. So because greed is God, you're not content. Because you're not content, you covet, which is an attitude of the heart that consumes everything. So Jesus is gonna show us the only way to be freed from coveting is worshiping. That's why he said, For your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. That word life is is the word all-encompassing life. All that could possibly give you meaning, depth, beauty, purpose. So Jesus himself, hold on, go back to Genesis 1, right? Right? The one who is the active agent in making you and me, making the world, he's the one in the flesh now saying, this is how the world works, this is how the world doesn't work. Life, true life, is not going to be found in not just possessions, even the abundance of it, even in the surplus of it. You can have 10 vacation homes, you can have 16 cars, you have cleanly cut grass, you have the best job in the world, but that's not going to be true life. You're never going to find it. It's the merry-go-round of insanity. You thinking something will work when it has never worked, thinking it might work. And we just chase it, right? And he's showing here that something needs to be replaced. Let me tell you why that is so profound right there. Just that one phrase, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Why is that profound? Think about how much time and energy you spend exhausting yourself on that. Right? Think about that. Just think, think about the hours of the day. If you can clock just, just how you look at life, investing for eternity or investing for possessions, what I have, how I can you know, organize my life in such a way that makes me feel secure, makes me feel safe, makes me feel like I'm whole now. I mean, think about how much time you exhaust in that. That's why this is profound. This statement is profound. Jesus, the one who wired you and made the world to work a certain way is going, hey, hey, idiot. That's not where life is found. That's not where true meaning and joy and depth and beauty is found. You're, not, you're, you're just chasing a unicorn. So the simple question becomes at this point, before we even move forward, is are you content or not? And not just content, are you content in Christ or not? if our comfort's not from him if our security's not from him if our identity's not from him then we will run to everything that will betray us everything that's where we'll go day after day week after week month after month You'll want more stuff. You'll binge shop. You'll go from relationship to relationship. You'll fall into gluttony and eat and eat. You'll want your neighbor's house. You'll want the pool, the yard, the kids your friends have, the spouse that person has. You'll hoard for yourself and never give generously. I I really feel like we live in a day where we don't own possessions. They possess us. Right? That's America. The American dream is not what the American dream is. The American dream is, hey, you want to be possessed by something? Get a lot of stuff. So it can then possess you and enslave you. You know, in the wisdom literature of Ecclesiastes, look at what Solomon says in chapter 5, verse 10. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. (laughs) People who love worship, who worship abundance and love possessions, are never satisfied when they get it, ever. Now here, the, the sin is not having more the sin is being discontent it's misplaced worship that's the issue right it's not the amount it's the attitude i mean abraham was super wealthy job was super wealthy solomon was super wealthy people in the New testament man they open up their homes it's such big houses they could house the church to gather in so it's not about what you have, it's about how you feel about what you have. You guys, you ever been in a situation, or maybe you know what I'm talking about, where you feel like, if I can just get, like, that salary, okay, then all the bills will be paid, right? Like, I'll be able to take care of everything. If I could. There's a number in your head. We all have it. So if you're like, oh, I don't have a number. Yeah, you do. You're lying, right? So you've got that number in your head of of job. I just... And what happens? Some of you guys, you get that job. But you know what's insane? You get the job. You get the salary you want. And then you're like, oh, man, I guess, okay, I can get that car now because that's a better car than the one that I have, right? And, I mean, yeah, our landscaping doesn't look like our neighbors. So, I mean, we could trim up the bushes. And then, then you find yourself having to pay for those things. And then before you realize it, you know what? Your salary's not high enough. Then you go, you know what? I just... If I could just get like 5,000 more a year, then I'd be able to pay. And then you get the 5,000 more a year. You know what happens? Rinse and repeat. As you grow in wealth, all of a sudden you grow in wanting more stuff. And so, so the issue is, man, not, hey, God has given this. I'm generous with what I have. It's all of His. How do I get generous with my wealth? It's how can I consume? And you become a slave to that. So you keep having to work yourself up the ladder just to take care of all the stuff you have. Because your heart is a covetous heart. Because our hearts are filled with greed. Because that's who we are as sinful, broken people. We do not want Jesus to satisfy our souls. We want the material world to satisfy our souls. We want everything outside of him to satisfy our souls. We want to buy the lie that life and possessions is life. Right? Because culture will say that, commercials will say that, our neighbor will say that, your boss will say that. The world screams out, possessions is life. What you have, your status, all of that is life. And the scriptures come in and free us from that limited way of thinking, lift our eyes to higher glories and say, no, we've got eternity coming. We've got future glory coming. Man, I'm not tied to this. I'm not enslaved to this. I don't need this because I have Christ who satisfies my needs, who gives me peace, who gives me refuge. I am a co-heir with him so I am as rich as he is so I can walk I can struggle through all of that as Jesus cares for my heart and carries me along the way ultimately because I trust him because he designed it all and he says hey life isn't there Mike let you you'll never find it there have the whole world what does Jesus warn us as in Luke 9 he who gains the whole world yet doesn't have Christ forfeits his soul So Jesus is saying to all who will listen, don't go down that road. Hear this guy's question? Don't go down that road. And look at what he says. He uses a parable to explain it, verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. At This point, hey guys, by the way, no sin. The guy made honest wealth, nothing wrong with it. Worked hard, produced crops, God was good. Nothing evil, nothing illegal, nothing dishonest. Nothing wrong with being wealthy. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now we're starting to see this guy in the parable, his heart. You see the shift? He's been given much. He's been given wealth. God has blessed his crops, blessed his work. And the sin becomes he doesn't want to worship God with his wealth. He wants to worship his wealth. So look at what he says. He's foolish. I will do this. I have nowhere to store my crops. I will tear down. I will build larger barns. I will store all my grain and goods. Do you see how man-centered it is? It's not, hey, God gave, God was generous. Man, is there a synagogue that needs some of this money? Hey, is there orphan or widows around? Hey, are there, there are poor people that could use some of this as resource? It's not, hey, God's been good to me, so I will give back as an act of worship. This wealth is causing me to worship the God who gives all good things. It terminates on himself, which will lead him more discontent. So he goes, man, I need bigger barns. i got to find somewhere to put all this stuff. And he becomes, becomes discontent with what he has because he needs more, because he was given more, and so he begins to sin in what is greed and idolatry. Look at verse 19, and he will say, and I will say to my soul, this is him talking to himself. You see how self-absorbed he is? When he has conversations, he talks to himself. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry so he's having a conversation with himself he builds bigger barns so he can control the output well if I can gather as much of this stuff and and hoard it and then be wise about how much I let out then I can just kick back retire eat, drink, be merry right I can live a life of ease I'm set for life why don't I just live heaven now if heaven's not coming. This is the classic American dream, right? Get all you can while you're here. Store it up, stock it away, and then just enjoy it over time so you can kick your feet back and flip-flops, margarita in hand, and pay someone to rub your back, right? That's living, right? No, this man is greedy. He's coveting. This is why Jesus says this in verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus says the American dream is foolish. Foolish. Hold on. I'm not saying that. The the God who made the universe, who wired you, who fashioned all things is saying to us, the one who understands in infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge, this is how it works. This is how your heart works. This is how affections work. He's saying the American dream is foolish. Because we're created to worship God, and because the worship of anything outside of God grows discontentment. And when you grow discontentment, you covet. And when you covet, you have to have more. And when you have to have more, you become enslaved. And when you become enslaved, you get angry, you get frustrated, you sin, you lash out, you grow in pride, you grow in arrogance, you grow in hoarding, you don't grow in generosity. You don't live your life for God, you live your life for yourself. And all of a sudden, before you even know it, you're in this place where you're like, how did I even even get here? Well, it all stems back to a worship issue because you weren't worshiping God, you were worshiping what God gives. And because you were not content in God and in the maker who fashioned you and made you and saves you in Christ and gives you everything in Christ, because we're not content in that, we grow discontent and that's why we covet and we don't see how damning it is. We don't see how serious it is for our joy, for our pleasure. See, man, we're not Christian prudes. Man, we're after joy, after pleasure. We're not about just avoiding stuff. I mean, we want to chase the highest pleasure possible. And we believe it's found and wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus and what he does for you in your soul, the satisfying nature, the the bread of life, the, the water that you drink from that you never thirst again. It's just amazing. So that when we taste Jesus, all of a sudden, he satisfies desires. He helps us not be enslaved to sin, enslaved to coveting, enslaved to other worship, and he makes us slaves to righteousness, even right thinking. It's part of what it means to be righteous. And so what happens because of that? is we buy more stuff, and then we buy bigger houses for our stuff, and we buy bigger driveways for our bigger cars, and then we have to dr- buy a bigger yard for our, and a bigger fence. And then, once we have all that, we wanna buy a better place with a better retirement deal. So we can live a life of ease, injury can be merry, not give ourselves to the church, not give ourselves to our kids and grandkids, not invest in the kingdom, but invest in us, thinking that we just want heaven now, heaven's not coming later. And that's what this man wants. And Jesus says, that's foolish. Is it a sin to make money? No. Is it a sin to live in a decent house? No. Not at all. The issue is he worships himself and he worships his possessions. He doesn't worship God. He doesn't worship Jesus. So this, in this parable, what is God going to do? God kills him. God kills him and stands him before the judgment seat and has him give an account of his life. So Jesus is saying how foolish to make all your plans on how you're going to spend all that you have and forget about your mortality. Forget that there's life after this. Forget that what you invest in that you sow to the spirit, I mean, you will reap eternally. That which you sow to the the, the flesh, which is death, you will reap negatively. I mean, do we believe that? Do we believe that there is eternity coming? This life is so temporary. James says it's but a breath. It's but a mist. It's but but a hand breath. That's from the edge of your thumb to your pinky. That's how much your life is. Pegged into eternity. He's going, hey, the hearse isn't going to pull all your barns. Your barns are going to stay there. You can't take any of that with you. Do you see how foolish that is? And here is the man standing before Jesus in his flip flops and a margarita, accounting for his life. And Jesus is saying, that's foolish. And you wanna know why it's foolish? Because on the day of judgment, the only thing he has to his name is nothing. And on the day of judgment, you know what we need accredited to our name? The the purchasing work of Jesus. Like that's what's gonna matter when you stand before God. It's not gonna matter what you had. What matters is, what is accredited to your name? The man had nothing accredited to his name. Everything that he stored up for himself in his covetous greed he couldn't take with him, so he stands before God basically naked, right? materially speaking. God's going, okay, well, you couldn't bring any of that here. Like, that's gonna, not going to buy your way in. Like, you longing for more isn't going to purchase for you righteousness. I mean, Jesus does that, and that's what's so amazing about the gospel. The gospel gives you the very thing that is necessary for the most important part of our entire life, which is himself, which is the way that we enter into glory. Like, like I, 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 heard, I heard the Lord saying to me all week, hey, Mike, Don't be concerned with what you have or don't have. Be concerned with your spiritual bankruptcy. And what resolves that? Rich, poor, let's deal with rich and poorness in the spiritual sense. Let's think accurately about that. That's why Jesus says this last phrase, life is not about laying up treasures for yourself. It's about being rich towards God. Jesus is saying, you're foolish if you store up for your whole life all of these possessions just for you, and you forget your mortality. Like, like, can you totally forget and dismiss what's coming? Like, you exhaust your life on you, forgetting that life is to be exhausted on God, because that's what's going to matter for eternity. Here's why the gospel levels the playing field always. I love it. Um, Everyone is poor. No matter how materially rich you think you are, everybody's spiritually poor outside of Christ. Now, you've got this prosperity gospel and poverty gospel. Both are bad. Prosperity says, if you love God, you'll be rich. Poverty gospel says, if you love God, you'll be poor. The Bible says, you're all poor. Jesus makes you rich. Right? I mean, that, that's what you see in the scriptures. That's what we go after. So let me connect this to the man's original question as we land the plane. He says, Jesus, basically, in Mike's language, I'm discontent, so I'm coveting my brother's inheritance. Tell him to give me half. Right? That's what the man says. And to answer the man's, the answer to the man's discontentment is found in the one he's asking the question to. <sighs> like, he's... Are, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Like He's, he's telling Jesus, the all-satisfying Jesus, hey, I'm discontent, so I'm coveting, and I need something to satisfy my soul. Can you tell me how to get that? And he's looking at the one who can purchase his soul, rescue from hell, and confess him in front of a hundred million angels. Like, like, okay, so apples to oranges, right? I mean, that's what he's seeing. I mean, that's, that's who he's looking at, and he's spiritually blind and can't see. The, the one who answers all of his questions is standing there. That's why Jesus just looks away from him and deals with it and gives him a parable, which he totally doesn't get. This is amazing. The, the, the reality here is Amazing. Because the good news, brothers and sisters, of the gospel is that you get to have Jesus. Which the Bible says means to be in Christ, right? In the words of Ephesians. But to be in Christ, to have Christ, do you know what that also means? That means that you have everything that Christ has. Have you ever thought about that? I think I've shared this before. I couldn't stop thinking about it this week. Just the idea of an inheritance. That the scriptures will say you're a co-heir with Christ. And so it makes us wonder, well, what does Christ have? And Hebrews 1, 2 says that Christ is an heir of everything. You know what an heir is? It's someone who inherits what the Father has. It's, It's your rights, your privileges given to you. So if you are a Christian just sit with me for a second. If you're if you're a Christian, you are the richest, most wealthy thing on the planet. I think I told you years ago, I did such a fun study. I looked up rich kids inheritance. I love doing that because I wanted to see what they inherit for fun as I started reading about this co-air idea in the scriptures and I saw that they actually there are some kids in parts of the states that take financial classes and they actually inherit like $1.2 million when they turn 18 from their parents? So they do financial planning, financial management, how to steward it all. If you were one of those kids, what would you be thinking about until you were 18? Oh my gosh, what am I gonna do with that inheritance? Oh my, it would consume you, right? It would preoccupy all of your thinking. Yet the scriptures are saying, you have an inheritance that is the galaxies like you get the stars like when we pass you inherit everything that Christ has so the Bible, it's the Bible's way of going hey you want to be rich, how about the Milky Way want the Milky Way, sure, it's yours you want Jupiter sure, it's yours are you hearing me like, that, that's true of you. So, here's my question. Why are we, and this is what just plagued my heart this week, why am I not consumed by as I sit and I feel the discontentment, I feel the longings, and I feel the greed creeping in and the coveting creeping in, why am I not so content in that I get the universe when I die? right, that I get to inherit all that Christ has, that I get glory, that I get no pain and suffering, that I get a walk with God, that I get Him, and I get everything that He has, that that is true of me as a son or daughter of Jesus. That he says is imperishable, undefiled, First Peter, kept by God waiting in heaven for you. No one can steal it. No one can take it. No stock market can drop. That's going to deplete it. Nothing's going to happen. Even if you get that inheritance when you turn 18 with $1.2 million, you could be killed the next day. Someone could steal it, commit fraud. Market could crash. Who knows what could happen? But this is guaranteed. The Holy Spirit says, I'm a guarantee. I'm the deposit. When he indwells you, he's saying, hey, that's coming. You can bank on it. We are rich because we are in Christ, because we have Jesus. And it's so hard for us to see that. We have to beg God to help us to see that and to see this accurately and helpfully. That's why as Christians, guys, we don't get to retire. We get to die. We have eternity to rest. You have eternity to put your feet up and enjoy God. And enjoy perfection and no evil and no wickedness, no, no tensions, no nothing. It's when the Christian begins to realize this that he also begins to realize there's nothing else to seek out, right? This is why worshiping totally severs coveting because you realize there's nothing else to seek out. What else are you going to ask for? I don't know, could you make a new galaxy? <laughs> well, there's millions you can't see. You got those too. Nothing can make the man or woman in Christ any richer. This is why, when our contentment and joy and worth is not in Christ alone, or why it is in Christ alone, he says you're rich towards God. So, to the Christian, I just want to ask as we close how are you being rich towards God? If you're really in Christ, if you really are his, and he is yours, if this is true for you, how are you being rich towards God? Let's just chat about money for a second, because this is about money. It's about wealth. And we only talk about it when the Scriptures talk about it, so we're not, like, in dire need or something. There's no, like, secret message here. <laughs> but this text is, is, is saying, you know, if you consider yourself a Christian, it, and if, if you're not a Christian, you're just visiting, just, this is a commercial break, but if you consider this your church home where you want to give yourself to this mission and these people... As your pastor, can I just encourage you for a minute? There are a few things that will more clearly display what you worship than what you do with your money. Me too. And I love it because every time we give, we're declaring money is not my God, I have the one who owns it all. And it's not because God needs your money, it's because he wants your heart. It has nothing to do with your money. He has cattle in a thousand hills that he can dispose at any time. It's because he knows where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Right? So it's a way that we visibly, as Christians, so I say it's an act of worship at the beginning of every service, is we give generously because we're declaring he's our allegiance. We have him. So we're not tied to this. And here at Church of Burden, we see giving as an act of worship. Old Testament, you got 10% tithe the first fruits. Uh, let me just say, we see in the New Testament it being worship, it being cheerful, sacrificial. So, so here's a good way of thinking. This is what Kristen and I do in our house, is if our giving doesn't hurt at all, it's not an act of worship. Like, if, if we give, and it doesn't at all put a little bit of strain on us, then it's probably not worship. And anyone can throw a buck in, right? <laughs> so that might be a good way just to examine your heart. Do you give to God? Do you give generously to God because of who you are? You're rich towards him. It's not about the number. It's about your heart. There are some, an act of worship's gonna be five dollars, an act of worship's gonna be 10,000, an act of worship's gonna be 300. I, it doesn't matter. It's just, is it worship? Are you declaring with God in your wealth that he is the one that you worship and serve? Are there areas you need to be in prayer about this? Talk with your spouse, grab a brother or sister. Hey, what does this look like for me? Are you rich towards God with your time? Like, how do you invest your time? Like, Do you you invest it, spending time with brothers and sisters that will grow you up in Christ and encourage you? you? Do you invest it in your work friends and those who are in your neighborhood, sharing the good news winsomely, helpfully, graciously about who Jesus is and what he's done? Acts 17 will say that you live in the time and season and place you do and because you are there God is not far off. I always say this. Do you know why God is not far off where you work and in your neighborhood? Because you're there. I mean my wife and I are constantly I mean even just recently 4th of July just investing and engaging with our neighbors and those on our street because I'm not randomly there just to be the weird pastor that they all know when I drive by don't look at him he's gonna wave or pray for me you know and I know even though they know that now like like his other ways that you're engaging the place you work it's not random it's not aimless it's investing for eternity are you rich towards God there How do you spend your time? Do you just spend it on Twitter, Facebook, video games? I mean, just watching the stock market all day? How do you invest your time? How does it demonstrate that this is not your home? These are the good questions that Jesus is laying before us this morning. Do you realize your mortality and your immortality? Do you realize that this life you will perish and that in the eternal phase you live forever? How are we being rich towards God? If we're not, it's because we are discontent. If we're not rich towards God with our money and not rich towards God with our time, it's because we're discontent and we're worshiping something else. Very plain and simple. And so maybe Jesus needs to examine our hearts in that way. And let me just say to the person here who does not know Jesus, I want you to know that you cannot be rich towards God because the Bible says that you are spiritually poor. And that in your poorness, in all of our poorness apart from Jesus, that it is accruing for us a debt, right? And ultimately, that debt that is accruing is storing up wrath, it's storing up for us judgment, right judgment, and somebody has to pay for it. So either we pay it by literally paying hell, we pay in hell for eternity, or Jesus pays for it. Jesus come and says, hey, the bill's got to be paid, so I'm going to pay your debt that you've been accruing in full. And it says, he who was rich became poor so that by his sake we could become rich. So he actually makes you rich in Christ through his poverty of becoming a man, living a life, a sinless life, dying the death you couldn't die, living and rising again, validating it all through the resurrection, then gifting you his Holy Spirit if you trust in his name. He takes your sin. He takes your debt. He takes the weight, he takes the weight of all that you owe God and cannot pay him back in and he gifts you his righteousness and he says I make you right before me and I make you rich you're then a co-heir with Christ you're not just in Christ you're a co-heir you share with him and all that Christ has so as we take communion this morning let's consider for a moment that his broken body and shed blood made you rich when you were bankrupt spiritually that we are desperately in need of him we remember through the visible bread and visible cup that this is the Jesus that purchased for us what we couldn't purchase when we were in greed and in covetousness and we wanted everything outside of him. We did not see him as pretty or lovely. He said, I'm making you mine. And then I'm making you mine to be used and to live in a way that looks like I'm yours, that I'm all you want. And you're rich towards me. And I protect you from living a life of the lie that it's found in the abundance of one's possessions. Let's ask him to help us. God, as we consider, repent where we need to repent, ask you for clarity where we need clarity, ask you for help where we need help, God, remind us this morning of our mortality and our immortality. Remind us, Lord, that when we covet, we are not content because we are not worshiping you because we do not love you more than our stuff. God, help us to see the glory that is Christ. Help us to see that. Help us to see reality. Help us to see the freeing nature of the gospel in our lives, so not be enslaved to the shackles of possessions. God, would you help us to live lives that are Generous. Would you help us to be good stewards? Would you help us to work hard and work well for our families, to care for them? As you say in your scriptures, is good and godly and right, but God, as well, would you help us to watch the greed that indwells us, the covetousness that will damn us apart from your son? Lord, help us to see you. Help us to believe that you're the only hope all the sin that indwells. Thank you for freeing us in Christ and making us rich. In Jesus' name, amen.